Acts chapter 17. Uh, We'll be reading here in just a minute, verses 16 through 34. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. If you're just here for the first time uh, here recently, the book of Acts tells the story of what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Uh, He came to this earth, he lived, died, he rose again to pay for the sins of the world. He ascended to heaven. And the book of Acts is then a book of facts about what happened after Jesus ascended. How his early disciples went out to tell people about Jesus. And at this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is on his second of three missionary journeys that he'll take here in the book of Acts. He'll ultimately go on three trips. He's now on his second trip. He's been traveling around with Silas and with Timothy, going into all these new areas, telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the last passage we looked at here, Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Berea, and the Apostle Paul now, all alone, he enters the great city of Athens. So that's where we're at. Let's pray and we'll read. Father, we just thank you for an opportunity to open your word. We trust, Father, that you have, as your scripture says, you have breathed this out for our eternal good. So we just look to you this morning and ask for your help, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this room. We pray for your grace. We pray, Father, you would give us eyes this morning to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. If you, if you knew nothing about Christianity... You had never heard of Jesus, you'd never seen the Bible, didn't know it exists, you didn't know one single Christian, knew nothing about Christianity, what would God want you to hear? And that might be you today. You might have walked in this door, this is your first Christian service, you don't know a thing of what we're doing here today, and if that's you, you are welcome, we're really, really glad you're here, and that is really common in America. Uh, My kids were playing outside a few years ago, and they told two of their neighborhood friends that they were going to be going to a church service, and their little neighborhood friend said, what's church? And my kids said, well, that's where we worship Jesus, and they said, who's Jesus? It's very common, if that's you today, not yet exposed at all to Christianity, really glad you're here, and what would God want you to hear Today, what should I say to introduce Christ to you? Where should I start? Or or maybe you are a Christian here. You've been following Christ in faith for quite a few years, but you have friends or family or co-workers who, who, who have not been exposed at all to Christianity. What would God want them to hear? And you know, the Apostle Paul just helped us with that right here, because That is exactly what Paul just did. Paul here in Athens was surrounded by people who knew nothing about Christianity. They had not heard about Jesus. They didn't know about any of the scriptures. They they, they didn't know Christians. They they knew nothing. And Paul just introduced Christ and Christianity to them. And when you look at what Paul says here, there are three main topics that Paul touches on here. This little three-point speech that he gives to the Athenians. Uh, Here are his three points on the screen, the three things we'll look at this morning. Paul talks here about creation, about judgment, and about grace. And we'll look at those in just a minute. But Luke first here, he kind of gives us a prolonged setting for what was taking place here in Athens. So we'll look at that first. Verse 16 says that Paul was now waiting here in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him. Let me show you where these men have been so far on this trip. Here's, here's a map. They started out east over in Antioch of Syria. And they traveled through Asia, stopping along the way before landing there in Neapolis, which is modern-day Europe, modern-day Greece. And they then made stops in Philippi and Thessalonica 
And the last passage, they were there in Berea. And Silas and Timothy are still there in Berea. And Silas and Timothy have now sent Paul ahead of them 250 miles by ship along the Greek coastline to Athens. And they may have sent Paul to Athens just so he could rest. Now, we don't think of the Apostle Paul as one who probably wanted to take vacations a lot. But listen, Jesus even took his disciples aside at times so they could rest. And this trip so far has been very rough. Persecution at every single stop for the Apostle Paul. So they probably sent him on to Athens to protect him, but also maybe so he could rest. Close the computer, turn off the phone, and maybe even do a little sightseeing in Athens. And listen, what better place for this than Athens back then? It was just this very famous and historical city. It had once been the center of just this massive Greek empire. It had produced famous philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was a very rich, um, liter- a very rich literary and artistic history. And, and now in Paul's time, granted, Athens had passed from its prime uh, to some degree, but still just lots of history there. Famous statues, buildings all over the place, very famous ones, some of them still standing today, like the Parthenon Temple, still standing on top of the Acropolis, a, a very steep rock about 200 feet over the city. Here's a current photo of the Parthenon Temple sitting on the Acropolis. Paul would have seen that right there entering this city of Athens. And Paul, it seems, then looked around Athens for a little bit. And something in particular caught his eye. Verse 1 says that Paul's spirit within him was provoked when he saw this city full of idols. And the Greek there could refer to a smothering in idols. The city smothered in idols. These little carved images depicting all of these false gods that the Athenians worshipped. And, and listen, Athens was swamped with idols. In the Parthenon, for instance, which you just saw, there was a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena. A spear in her hand that would gleam in the sun. Some people back then said it was visible from 40 miles away. And throughout the city of Athens, it is estimated today that there were maybe some 30,000 idols. Little images scattered throughout the entire city of Apollo, Jupiter, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, the entire pantheon of Greek gods. So many idols in Athens that Petronius, a Roman writer at the time, he joked that it was easier in Athens to find a god than a man. That's a lot of idols. And Paul sees these idols everywhere, and his spirit, Luke says, was provoked within him. The Greek word is paroxuno. It means you are inwardly irritated. You are inwardly 
angered, in, infuriated. It, it's where we get the word paroxysm. Paul here had a paroxysm, seeing these idols, a violent reaction of, of emotion. Seriously upset by all these idols. And listen, Paul's reaction here was a reflection of God's reaction, God's heart toward all idols or false gods in this world. God said in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, that human beings should put no other gods before him. And when humans do put false gods, idols, before the one true God, well, God is provoked. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, that word that Luke just used there, paroxuno, provoked, well, that word in the Greek Old Testament is used repeatedly to describe God's response to idolatry. Here's one example, Isaiah 65, 2. God says this, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me, paroxuno in the Greek, provoke me to my face, continually sacrificing in gardens, and making offerings on bricks. It was just all this idolatry that God was seeing there in the book of Isaiah, and that idolatry provoked God, the same as Paul's reaction here in Acts 17. And you know, just pause on that for a second. We could look around our country today and say, man, thank God we don't have a lot of little idols all over the place that would provoke God, but we do. Maybe not these man-made statues all over the place, but heart idolatry. All kinds of things that people worship before God. You can look around. We were taught when we go out to plant churches, look at your community and look for all the false heavens out there. The false gods out there. Because they're there. Scott Oliphant says this, An idol is anything that takes the place of God in someone's heart. John Stott says this, An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Let me repeat that. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy in the human heart, that is an idol in God's eyes. It is whatever you look to in this life for ultimate fulfillment. The number one pursuit of your life. It could be fame, it could be power, it could be money or sex or food or security or your family or your children or your job. If I just have this, all will be well in my life. And listen, we all have heart idols at times. Every last one of us. You know why? Because God created us as human beings to be worshiping beings. He created us to worship Him. But when mankind rebelled in the Garden of Eden, our worship became distorted. And all of us now, every human being, has this sinful tendency to worship not the one true God, but to worship God's created things. 
You know, when you look at this chapter, Acts 17, Paul in Athens, you go later today and read Romans 1, because Romans 1 undergirds a lot of what Paul does right here. And Paul, in Romans 1.25, Paul will say this about the human race. Paul says, we all, he's talking human race, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is idolatry in the human heart. John Calvin said that the human race, after the fall, has now become a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts constantly producing idols, things we worship instead of the one true God. And listen, please hear me. Our idolatry provokes God. The same as it did in Acts 17, the same as it did in Isaiah, idolatry still provokes the one true God. We see it here with Paul, and man, Paul now, having been stirred up, uh, looking around, seeing all of these idols, well, so much for Paul's vacation. Do you ever go on vacation thinking, I get to rest, and then your phone blows up, and you're on the beach just working the whole time? Well, Paul is now going to work. He cannot keep his mouth shut, and he begins to go, and he begins to converse with people, pointing them to the one true God. And please listen, Paul here, Paul opening his mouth here in Athens, well that is the compassion of God on full display. Because God is provoked, he's angered by all idolatry, including this here in Athens, and yet God is compassionate He is infinitely merciful and God now moves Paul to speak. God himself now reaching out to these idolaters in Athens. And verse 17 says that Paul now began to reason in this synagogue with the Jews. It's where he always starts in a new city. But verse 17 also says that Paul reasoned in the marketplace, the agora, where everybody hung out in Athens. And he reasoned there with whoever was there, probably non-Jews, Greeks. Now, verse 18 says he conversed now, probably in that marketplace, with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Some of you had philosophy class in school, and your brain is trying to get back there to Epicurean and Stoic, and we won't go into great detail, because I hated philosophy class. Epicureans. Epicureans believed the world was due to chance. There was no life after death. There was no judgment for the Epicureans. So very naturally, they said humans should just pursue pleasure. And Stoics were kind of the mortal enemies of the Epicureans. The Stoics believed everything in life was due to fate, not chance. Do your duty. Endure pain. Don't pursue pleasure. And Paul is conversing with all these people in the marketplace, including these philosophers now, and the people are trying to figure out who this new guy in the marketplace is. Verse 18 says that some of the people there said, what does this babbler wish to say? It's a very derogatory term. It doesn't just mean he's babbling. The Greek word for babbler referred to someone who picked seeds. It referred to a scavenger. 
The Greek word there was used to describe a person who just kind of pecked at other people's ideas like a chicken and then spouted those ideas back out without actually understanding the ideas. So when they call Paul a babbler here, they're basically saying, this guy's an ignorant plagiarist. He's just received second-hand information, spitting it back out. They called him a fool. Look at 1 Corinthians at how many of the Greeks viewed Paul and his gospel preaching. They viewed him as foolish. There it is, right there. But others there, verse 18 says, thought Paul was a preacher of, of foreign divinities because he's talking about Jesus and about the resurrection of Christ. And these people in the marketplace, now they want to hear more. So they bring Paul, verse 19, to the Areopagus. You've heard maybe of Mars Hill? That is the Areopagus. Ares is the Greek word for Mars. Pagus meant hill. Mars Hill is a famous rocky hill just to the northwest of the Parthenon. Here's a current photo of Mars Hill. There's actually a plaque there today at Mars Hill inscribed Greek wording with the very words that Paul will speak here now. In Acts 17, here's a picture of the plaque. Those are Paul's words here in Acts 17. So that is where Paul is now. The Areopagus, this rocky hill in Athens. Here's the thing. That word Areopagus back then, it didn't just refer to that location. It was also the name of the judicial council that met there. Socrates, many years earlier, had been brought before that Areopagus council at Mars Hill. He was found guilty of corrupting the youth in Athens. He was ordered to drink hemlock to execute him. And it was very likely that Paul was now taken to Mars Hill to be questioned by that same council. And here it is. Paul now at Mars Hill, just picture it right there, you saw it, there he is, surrounded now by lots of people who know nothing about Christianity. They don't know Jesus, the Bible, nothing, and what does Paul say? How does he introduce Christ here? Well, Paul starts here with creation. It's point one of his speech. You look at verse 22, he gets into it here. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. (laughs) Just pause for a second. It's actually a little bit funny. These people in Athens, they had idols to every god imaginable. 30,000 idols. And, just in case, we have inadvertently missed a god out there somewhere. Well, we also got this idol to the unknown god just to cover all of our bases. And Paul now, though, very shrewdly grabs hold of that and connects it. To God, what you Athenians worship there as unknown, well, this I will now proclaim to you. I can tell you who that God is. 
and probably had every ear then at that Areopagus council. And Paul starts talking about creation, the creator, the entire universe. So you look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all man, all mankind, life and breath and everything. Athenians, that there is one God who made everything. You, me, rocks, trees, all of it. And, and this God, creator, Lord of heaven and earth, Paul says, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And verse 25, this God is not served by man either, by human hands, as if this God needed anything from man since this God gives to man life, breath, and everything. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And Paul then, he just keeps hammering on this theme of creator and and creation. If you look at verse 26, and he, God, made from one man, that's Adam in the Garden of Eden, God made from Adam, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This God, he, he created the entire human race out of one man. And he determined when and all the nations would exist. And God did this, Paul says, so we might seek Him. So we might feel our way toward Him and and maybe find Him. And and with that statement, I I think Paul was probably leaning there into this Greek mindset that, that was there in Athens, this constant search they had for what was true and what was divine. And Paul's now saying that God was the one who had caused them to search. He's ordered your lives in such a way, all the nations, so we might seek Him. Feel our way toward him, maybe even find him. And listen, Paul wants these Athenians to know that this great God, he's not actually hard to find because he's right there with them. And you look at the end of verse 27, yet he, this creator God, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live, we move, and we have our being. And Paul just quoted there with that last statement from a 6th century B.C. poet, long before this event here, a poet named Epimenides. A saying that these Greeks here would have recognized. Epimenides said, in God we live and move and have our being. And Paul now grabs that saying and he says to these Athenians here, Epimenides was right. In God we do live and move and have our being because God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. 
all over this room right now. More intimate with you right now, as St. Augustine said, than you are with yourself. And this great creator, sustainer God who's all around us, he's the one who causes us to search for him. And he's not hard to find, Paul is saying. He's all around us. And Paul then ends this section with one more comment about this creator God. If you look at the end of verse 28, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring created by God. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And Paul just quoted right there from a third century B.C. poet, Eratus. Long before this, Eratus had said, for we are indeed God's offspring. Another saying these Greeks would have recognized. And Paul here now says, Eratus was right. We are God's offspring. All of us created by this one true God. And therefore, Athenians, it is ridiculous to think that this massive, omnipotent creator God is one of those little statues. On the hill. I want you to pause for just a second because I think there's an important side note right here. Paul just quoted from two pagan poets, not Christian. And Paul just publicly agreed with a couple things that those pagan poets had said. So good to catch that. Because some Christians today are just terrified of anything that is spoken or written outside of their little Christian stream. If it wasn't John Piper or Paul Tripp who said it, it's heresy. Don't quote it. (laughs) And we laugh, but you know it's true. So narrow. Terrified of anything outside that narrow little stream and yet lots of people on this planet including many non-christians have stumbled upon truth and there's something critical for us as christians to remember all truth is god's truth no matter where that truth is found St. Augustine said this, or St. Augustine, if you're a snob. (laughs) Let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Or John Calvin. All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. And you see, truth is not just truth because somebody labels it Christian. Truth is truth if and when it comes from God. And it is in accord with the Scriptures. 
So let's have enough maturity as Christians to recognize that all truth that aligns with Scripture is ultimately God's truth, no matter where that truth is found. And let's have the skill and the wisdom to use at times the truth of the people of this world outside of our little narrow stream when it serves the purposes of the kingdom of God, which is what Paul does right here. Paul uses these two truthful statements from pagan poets, and he uses them to point people to God. Those two statements gave Paul common ground with these Greeks right here. And that's the problem with many Christians. We don't look for common ground with non-Christians. There's no connection point there. We act as like we're aliens from a different planet. And Paul connects these two statements. He has common ground with these Greeks. Those things your own poets said, they are truth. And he then uses those truths. He redirects them and he points them to the one true God. You know what you call that? You just call that great apologetics. In logic, if you had logic class, that is just a persuasive argument for Christ. You acknowledge the truth in what the other person has said, and you then redirect that truth. You you correct the mistakes, maybe, that they have put around that truth, and you point them to Christ. And that's what Paul does here, just great apologetics here. Not afraid to go there, not afraid to affirm the truth that had been spoken out in the world. And listen, Paul now, when you just look at the first part of his speech we've just covered, what has he done? Surrounded by people who never heard about Christ before, they didn't know anything about Christianity, he points to creation. All of this, this creation and creator language. And it's amazing when you think about it, Paul did not instantly take these people to the scriptures. He didn't say, hey, let me just read the Bible to you guys. Now, the Bible is the first place we should go with most non-Christians. But these Greeks, they had no category at all for these scriptures. It was meaningless to them. So Paul, he takes it back a step and he points to creation. The same thing he did back in Acts 14. And why? Why does he keep doing this with people who have never heard before, pointing to creation? Here it is. Because every human being, deep inside, has this innate, instinctive knowledge of the one true God. Every human being, according to Scripture, knows deep inside that this one true God exists. And how does every human being know that? Creation. Everything we now see. You look outside on the way home. Everything. Rocks, trees, sky, all of it. Look at the people sitting behind, beside you. The, 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 the way they breathe and move. Think about the way the, the rain and the sun cause things to grow on this earth. Of the 24-hour cycle, night and day, that allow you to sleep and, and, and work. And just, just think about the fact that our planet is not one degree closer to the sun, which would cause everything to burn up instantly. It's not one degree further from the sun, which would cause everything to instantly freeze. Just consider creation. It is all too perfect it fits us 
just too well. And according to the Bible, every last bit of creation, it whispers, there is a God. There is a God. A very good, providing, creating, sustainer God. And this God is way too big to fit into little temples. He is way too glorious to be captured by a little statue. The creator, sustainer of all things. Creation tells us some things about God. Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge about a creator God. All creation right now is pouring out speech. It's revealing. It's, it's, It's giving us knowledge. It's proclaiming. It's declaring to us some things about God. Derek Thomas says this. God has left his autograph everywhere. Everywhere. The Puritans used to call creation God's other book. This is one of God's books. This reveals God to be a redeemer. Creation reveals God to be creator. And every human being sees God's autograph in creation. And the Bible says that every human, therefore, every human being, because of creation, knows innately, instinctively, that there is a God, a creator, a sustainer of all things. Paul, back in Romans 1, in Romans 1.19, he says this about the entire human race. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to the human race because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by the human race ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We, we see God's autograph and we, we see it everywhere. God revealing through nature some of his attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, clearly perceived, Paul just said, by the entire human race. Back in the French Revolution, when the Enlightenment was just exploding and man was trying to get rid of God, just trying to reason him away, One of the men in the Enlightenment, wanting to rid the world of Christianity, he said to some Christians, we will tear your steeples down so you will never again be reminded of your superstitions about God. And the Christian said, yes, but you will never be able to tear the stars from the sky. And all of those stars will forever remind all of us that there is one true creator God. And every human being now, because of creation, we all now deepen our hearts. We have this innate, instinctive knowledge there is a God. The problem, however, is that back in Eden, 
in the fall of humanity, we turned away from this creator, God. And Paul says in Romans 1, that human beings now suppress the knowledge of God that is within us. It's still there, but we suppress it and push it down and try to lock this knowledge of God away. No longer worship Him as God, but worship His created things. Idolatry. These images back in Athens are hard idolatry here in America. Romans 1.20, Paul says this. He says, so they, the entire human race, are without excuse. For although they knew God, how? Creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for idolatry. We no longer worship Him as God, but we still know because of creation that there is a God, creator, sustainer of all things. And Paul now, here in Athens, listen, look what he's done. Paul now here in Athens, but pointing these people to creation, Paul is simply tapping into that, etern- that internal knowledge of God that all humans possess. Look around, Athenians. Look around. Look all around you. Look at the people next to you. You know inside it was all created by one really big, really good, creating, sustaining God. So that's one thing here Paul touches on with these people. They know nothing about Christianity. And where does he go for it? He goes to creation. And the second thing, his little second point of his speech here, is judgment. You look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Please catch what Paul just said there. Paul's a guy right here who is at risk of getting stoned. Catch what he said. He just said there basically that all this idolatry in Athens, these images he's already talked about a lot, or this hard idolatry in America, having this knowledge of God in the heart because of creation and yet not worshiping God, Paul just said it is ignorance. It's ignorance. Our thinking, as he said in Romans 1, futile. Our foolish hearts darkened. We've exchanged the glory of God for images. A profound ignorance in the human race that Paul is now addressing. And yet, Paul says, verse 30, the times of ignorance, times of idolatry, God overlooked for a while. And again, it's just the compassion of God because even though all idolatry does provoke God, And all idolatry deserves his instant judgment. He remains merciful. And for quite some time, God in his mercy in the human race had overlooked the world's ignorance. The world's idolatry. But now Paul is saying, and the now there, now that Christ has come. But now, Paul says, God now commands 
all people everywhere to repent. To turn away from their idolatry and to turn back to the one true God. And why? Because, Paul says, God has fixed, God has designated a day sometime in the future when He will judge. Paul says several things here about this future judgment. One, Paul says it will be universal. He says the world will be judged. Two, it will be a righteous judgment. It will be fair. No miscarriage of justice. And three, Paul says the judge has now been appointed. And God has given assurance. He's let all people everywhere know who His appointed judge is by raising Him from the dead. And Paul has now bridged the gap to Jesus. He's gone from creation to the cross. And the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, is God's assurance to the world that Jesus is His appointed one and only judge. Jesus Christ someday in the future will judge the entire world in righteousness, both the living and dead, the Bible says. And I want you just to pause for a second and notice what Paul just did. Surrounded by non-Christians, they never heard a thing about Jesus or Christianity. And listen, many Christians today would be tempted in that setting to say all positive things to these people. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Trust in Jesus. He'll make you happy. Paul has one shot with these people. And he goes first to creation. And he then goes immediately to judgment. And you know why he mentions judgment? Because if you don't know about the judgment of God, you will put Jesus Christ on for the wrong reason. You will put him on to give you a nice life here on this earth. You will put him on because you think he'll make you healthy and wise and wealthy on this earth so you can get fame and fortune and make lots of money. But if you know about the judgment of God, you will put Jesus on for the right reason to save you from the judgment to come and to bring you back into an eternal relationship with God. He goes to judgment and he's just telling these people, he's telling you, he's telling me, all idolatry will be judged. It doesn't matter if it's statues or hard idolatry. It will be judged. But once Paul mentions here the resurrection of Jesus, he basically just ended the meeting. <laughs> if you look at verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Because most Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection. They, they might have believed in some sort of spiritual afterlife, but a resurrection of a physical body? No way. And Paul, by mentioning the resurrection of Jesus, he just blew up the meeting. But many of them want to hear Paul again. And we see then into the passage, verse 34, that some of the people here ultimately joined Paul, believed in Christ, new Christians, including, Luke says, a man named Dionysius, a woman named Damaris, and others. So, that's the second little point, creation, judgment. Very quickly, the third thing I think we can find here in Paul's little three-part speech is grace. 
Grace, 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 grace. Now, you don't find it explicitly here. You don't find a direct mention. Hey, God's also gracious though. But it's all through this text. And listen, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, I think we can be confident that Paul did speak in Athens about God's grace repeatedly. Here or when they later uh, met with Paul again, listen, the Apostle Paul in Acts, he never talks about Jesus and his resurrection without talking about the grace of God. Never. And Paul just mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. And, 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 and uh, Paul, you know, when he talks about this here, he, he, with the grace of God, I guarantee you when he's addressed idolatry, you think about idolatry, all of that stuff deserves God's judgment. And yet, you know the good news? Jesus Christ took the judgment for all idolaters who would trust in him. Jesus stepped in the gap to offer forgiveness for all idolaters. That's a beautiful thing. And I know Paul, somewhere along the line, spoke that very gracious thing to these people, the Lord Jesus, and why he had died. You know, every last bit of this text really It's all the grace of God. All of it. It's all God's unmerited favor for idolaters like you and me. Listen, everything here is grace. It was God's grace that sent Paul to Athens in the first place. To these idolaters. He didn't have to go there. It was God's grace that stirred Paul up to speak here to these idolaters. He could have just stayed on vacation in Athens. It was God's grace that saved those Greeks who simply believed, those idolaters who simply believed in Christ. This entire text is full of God's grace, it's unmerited favor for idolaters like you and me. And man, listen, as we saw last week in Romans 5, if you now trust in Christ, you stand in grace. You right now are standing in God's unmerited favor simply because of Christ. So there it is, man. The Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. And what do we learn? Listen, if you don't know anything about Christ today, if you, if you don't know anything about Christianity or, or the Bible, what would God want you to hear? Well, there it is. But it's not just for those who've never heard. It's for all of us. God wants all of us to hear this. And here it is. There is a creator. You know it. You know it in your heart. And there will be a future judgment. A judgment based on your works, which means a basement judged on your genuine connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is full of grace who sent his son to die for idolaters that we might have eternal life. May God give us faith to believe it. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for how creation now declares the glory of God, declares His handiwork. We, we thank You, Father, for Your creation. We know in our hearts that You're there. You're here with us now in You. We live and we move and we have our being all around us. We believe there is a future judgment. We believe that in and of ourselves, no one will stand in that judgment. And yet, Father, we believe in your grace. May you, being merciful, being compassionate, you sent your own Son to bear the punishment 
of idolaters in order that all who cling to him in faith might be forgiven. Oh, Father, help us. May that penetrate our hearts. May we believe these things and hold fast to these things, Lord God, all of our days. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.